Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles handy, open to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to begin our series entitled Building a Better Family. And I think if you have a family, you're probably sitting here this morning and say, yeah, we'd all love to build a better family. But how do we do that? Well, we could start with step one, step two, or a list of how-tos. But that would be a bad idea. You know why? Because it really doesn't get to the heart of our problems. It really doesn't address the issues that need to be addressed. We need something way more powerful than that. We need something that goes way beyond a couple of steps. We're way too broken. We need way too much healing. Because we need healing that goes deep down into our souls. We need a life and power that is much greater than we presently know. And yet, we know that God has done something great. God has moved. God has acted. God has seen our plight. God sees the problem. He understands. And so God did something. God has moved. God is going to do something. God is going to work. And he's going to give you what you need. He's addressed the issue. He's addressed the problem. And you realize that this morning, you need way more than a step or a how-to Because fundamentally, you need God himself. Because you can't manage your life apart from him. You were created to be in union and communion with God and his life to be lived in and through you. You were created to to have his strength, to have his wisdom, to have his power. That's how we were created. But you know what we do as people? We try to do it on our own. We try to, we want to find a couple steps, don't we? We're frustrated. We want a little how-to. We're, we're digging around in the self-help section at Barnes & Noble because we're frustrated. The problem is, the problem is too great for us to overcome with a couple of steps. Sin has mutilated our relationship with God. Sin has separated us from the one who's the God of all life, the God of all peace, the God of all joy, the God of all strength, the one who's intended to fill us and to fill us to overflowing so that we can actually live a life unto him. Yet because of sin, we've been separated from him. Yet we all know we're, you know, hopefully we're here, we're Christians, we understand, oh, yeah, we know God remedied that. God took care of that because he sent his only begotten son. We know that Jesus came to take care of these issues. Yet, let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian here this morning and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
You think it would be that simple, not easy, right? I believe in him, and I, I know that Jesus came to, to save us, but what I'm looking in, when I look at my life, when I look at my marriage, my family, I'm not seeing love, joy, peace. I'm not seeing the fruit of the Spirit superabounding. I'm not seeing life overflowing. So what's the problem? I believe Jesus. What's the problem? Well, the part of the problem is, is that we struggle. We struggle to believe the gospel, even as Christians. Do you realize that? We are not filled and overflowing with God's love because we understand we we have a hard time grasping it, fully laying hold of it, the promises of it. This morning we are going to look at the power of the gospel. And the fact is we all need the gospel, but especially if you're married and you're trying to make your marriage work, you desperately need the gospel. And we're going to find out why. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul lays out an amazing foundation. And I'm going to turn to Ephesians 1. And you know what? If you know Ephesians at all, you think, hey, we're going to talk about marriage. Where would you turn to? Ephesians chapter 5. But before you get to the practical, you have to get to the place where you understand who you are in Christ and what it is he's done for you. And you have to begin believing it. And then we can move, make your way to Ephesians chapter 5. So in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, this is Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God, he opens up with absolute praise. Blessed be God. Blessed be his name. Because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. And then he goes on to say what these are. He starts with this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, this is a powerful statement that often can just get lost on us. So we're going to dive in a little bit and see exactly what he's saying by this statement. The declaration here is that you are holy and blameless in Christ. You notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, he doesn't end here, does he? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Um, and just stop there. What he does is if we look at it, in verse 4, all the way through this, this is the one thing that we're going to note all the way through, is this is all about being in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In verse 4, he chose us in him. In him, in Jesus. This is the concept we have to understand. In him, that we should be holy and blameless. So here's the thing. 
You are holy and blameless, not because you by yourself are holy and blameless. Would anybody here claim to be holy and blameless, like pure, undefiled, completely separated unto God? Nobody could accuse you of anything according to your thoughts, according to things that you've said, and according to things that you've done. They could not nail anything upon you. No, that's just not true. So how is a person, how are you sitting here this morning, how are you to be holy and blameless when you know what you thought this week? You know what you said, how you treated others. You know what you said to your kids. You know what you said to your spouse. You know what you said to your friends. You know what you said to your parents. You know what you thought about those people. And you know what you did. You know what you did in secret. So how is this possible? Holy and blameless. Because the important thing to understand is it's in him. We're holy and blameless in him. Think of it this way. When you receive an inheritance from your parents, on what basis did you receive it? You received it on the basis of your familial connection. You received it on the basis of being part of the family. You received it on the basis of having the last name. You didn't receive it because of anything else. And not only that, who didn't receive it? All those outside. All those disconnected. All those disassociated. All those who are apart from the family. Only those who are in the family are... I mean, we know that there's inheritances given outside the family. But for the most part, this is typically how it works. And it works this way because you are connected and a part of the family. In like manner... Our holiness and our blamelessness before God is a blessing given to us by connection, by being a part, by being in Christ. It is for the children. One of the greatest problems we have in our lives is that we feel dirty, sometimes useless, sometimes guilty, and sometimes vile because of our sin. Well, we know, this is what we know, right? God is holy and righteous. God is just. God is this amazing being that is absolutely pure and undefiled, and nothing impure and undefiled could be in his presence. So with those two things, when you think of yourself and you think of God, you don't really think of a nice, real good connection, do you? You don't think of, wow, how? we struggle because we know who we are. And we know who God is. You know, even so many unbelievers understand God. You know, do you realize why so many people who are apart from God, living in sin, don't want to come into church? You know, they said, I never set foot. That's not foot in that place. That's not for me. Do you realize what I've done? Do you realize who I am? I, I'm way too bad for that place. And I'm sure you've heard that before. How is that true? How, how can they say that? Because they intuitively, by their own consciences, know. They know that God is holy. They know that he's pure, that he know he's undefiled, that he's righteous. And they know they're not. So how is it that this holy, just, righteous God and these unholy, unjust, unrighteous 
filthy people can come together. They come together and not just come together. In fact, we have to be made blameless. We have to be holy, pure, undefiled, separated unto God. And he does this for us in Christ. Now, as long as you think of yourself as a person, you know, we talk, you know, I'm nothing but a sinner. I sin and everything else. You know, as long as we think about that, we dwell on the fact that we sin and things that we do, say, do, and think, and we have these sins, and I sinned this week. And as, as long as you dwell on that, and as long as you dwell on the fact of God's holiness and purity, you have a hard time understanding how the two can come together. But you have to understand that you are, if you are in Christ, you are holy and blameless. Nobody could blame you for a certain, any one particular sin at all. Blameless, without blame. Holy, pure, undefiled, separated unto God. Is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as holy and blameless before God? Or do you see yourself over here is this sinner who all I do is sin and I think of my sins because you have sins and you have a hard time understanding yourselves as holy and blameless. If you have a hard time wrapping your head around that, you know what you're, how you're thinking. You're thinking of yourself not in Christ, but outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, you have no holiness and you're blameworthy. But in Christ... By believing in Him, do you realize this morning that you are holy and blameless? Is that something that you can profess? Can you confess that? Do you know why that's hard to believe? We know our experiences. We we know what we've done. And hey, after all, who would like to proclaim, I'm holy and blameless? Well, we don't, we, we'd want to make a thousand qualifications. We are holy and blameless in Christ. I am in Christ. And you know what? That's got to sink down deep in our hearts. We've got to learn to understand ourselves in Christ, not outside of Christ, but in him. And in him, I am holy and blameless before God. I guarantee you, if you let that sink in and you understand it, it begins to transform and change your life. It has nothing to do with me. I am holy and blameless in Christ because I'm united to him and he is holy and blameless. And so his holiness and his blamelessness is mine by connection. And this is, this is further understood as, as Paul goes on here. He's developing these spiritual blessings and he's helping them you need to understand that you're holy and blameless in christ and you need to understand this as well as he moves on to help us to understand the connection between why it is we're holy and blameless he goes on to say in verse five he predestined us for adoptions as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will he predestined us for adoption 
as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He predetermines that we are going to be his children in Christ. This is an this is profound and has profound implications as well. According to John chapter 1 verses 12 through 13, the process of adoption happens simply upon our believing. This is what it says. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what is he saying here? By believing, he gave you the right to become children of God. Your believing, you know what it was? It was the stamp on your adoption papers saying you believe. And then what he says is this being born is not from you. It's not of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's from God. That believing is even from God. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, if you slide on over there, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. By grace. Absolutely. You know, grace is this. It's getting from God what you absolutely do not deserve. That's, the, that's what it means. If you deserve it, if you had it coming to you, you can't call it grace. So for by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. This is important. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So how is it that you become a child of God? When you believe and put your trust in Jesus, you turn to Him and put your confidence in Him. He says, at that point, you become a child of God. And that believing, that trusting, that looking to Jesus, do you know what that is? That's a gift from God. Do you realize that not anybody can do that on their own self-will? can't it's a gift from god so god predestined us to become his children because he gave us faith in him which makes us his children you know this is great news phenomenal news because we've ever since the fall we were put out of fellowship and communion and union with god the god of all life the god of all joy the god of all goodness the god of all peace the God that we need for everything we need in life, we've been separated from Him and we brought in union with Him. Do you know what happens when we're separated from God? Death. Death happens. So in order to be reconciled to God, in order for us to have our life back, we need to be restored. We need, we need to become His children. He needs to bring us back into fellowship with Him, in communion with Him, in union with Him. And that happens upon believing. I am a child of God. I belong to him. I am his. Because I believe in Jesus. He is mine and all that is his is mine. So what we have to understand is that this, the implications of this is that we're loved, we're accepted, and we're delighted in by God. He loves us as a heavenly father. Absolute delights absolutely delights in us. But here's the thing. If you're in Jesus, 
and you doubt God's acceptance of you. You doubt God's love of you. You doubt God's delight in you because of how you have conducted your affairs. Or simply because you know that, oh, you wouldn't believe what I thought. What I thought was was crazy last week. And, well, I I say to you, did you confess your sin to God? Yeah, I confessed it to him. But I, I just don't, I don't know how he can accept me after that. I don't know... You know, I confess my sin to God, and I, I, I turn to him, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to understand his love. Because how could I, who's been loved so much, given so much grace, how could I think that? How could I do that? How, now, and, and you know what? I know what the Bible says as well. I've read the Bible, and it says, you know, especially 1 John 3, 9 through 10, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there you go, Dean. The scripture says that my sinning is evidence, or my not sinning or not sinning, is evidence of whether or not I'm a child of God. Well, it is true. Here's one thing that's true. That the children of God, and here's what's very important, do not continue in sin or do not practice sin, as 1 John talks about. He goes throughout that book to talk about this idea. They keep on sinning. They practice sin. In other words, they live in sin. They walk in sin. They do not repent or confess of their sin or turn to God. Because, and how do we know this is true? Well, John says himself, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So it... So it Understand this. It isn't that we don't sin. It's that we don't continue in sin and walk in sin. So if you yell at your wife and call her a nasty name, that doesn't mean you're not a child of God. Not necessarily. It just means you're an idiot. (laughs) What a child of God does is confesses his sin to his wife and says, listen, what I said to you last night was completely inappropriate and I need you to forgive me. And there's confession, there's repentance, there's a turning. And so even it, it isn't, so don't look for the evidence in the sinning. The sinning is not going to confirm for you whether or not you're a child of God because if you think that you're going to be without sin, you're deceived. It's, it's just not true. You will sin at times. You will, you will do sinful things. You'll say things. You'll think things. You'll do things. But here's the difference. You don't live, dwell, walk in it continually. You confess it. You turn from it. And this is what John is saying here. And then we get back to Ephesians where it talks about, listen, in Christ you are a child of God. And now you have to believe that you are loved 
accepted and delighted in by God, not on the basis of your performing, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and him alone, the fact that you were united to him, God delights in you. God loves you. You know what? Paul wanted us to understand God's love for us deeply. He wanted us to get this because if we... Are you overwhelmed at times at how much God has loved you? Does that ever just fill your heart? And experience and know his love for you, his delight in you, his joy in you? Because in this book, in Ephesians, if you want to look at chapter... Turn to chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting at verse 17, Paul starts... He's praying for them here. Oh, I pray for you. And one of the things he says is that you that you'd be rooted and grounded in love, that you may have the ability to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. you see what he's saying? I pray that you might understand the love of God in Christ Jesus, that you might know the height, the depth, the breadth, that you would get it, because if you get it, you'd be filled with the fullness of God. And it would overflow in your life. You would stop trying to, thinking that somehow God is displeased with you. God is angry with you. God is distant from you. God is scowling at you. And he's, you know, of course God hates your sin. That's why he deals with it. But he loves you and he will, he'll discipline you as a good father would. He'll make sure to spank you. He'll make sure to take care of you. He knows what he's doing. Confess your sin. Turn from your sin. And not doubt for a moment his absolute love of you. Even when he's spanking you, that needs to be a confirmation to you. When, he call, when you're proud and selfish and he cuts your feet out, you fall flat on your face. That's love, folks. He loves you. He's drawing you back to himself, calling us to turn from his sins. So one of the things we have got to wrap our minds around is understanding I'm a child of God, holy and blameless, acceptable to him, and he loves me and delights in me and fully accepts me. Do you know, if we allowed ourselves to fully embrace and be fully convinced and to meditate upon his love for us in Christ Jesus, it would fill our lives to the full. We would overflow with this love, and then all of a sudden when you get and you understand the Father's love and it fills your heart, guess how you're going to treat your spouse? With love. We love because he first loved us. And if you're frustrated, if you think you know you're you're kind of cold and you're ornery and you're grumpy and you're snappy and you're and you're selfish and you're angry and you've got all kinds of issues because out, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And it's betraying you. It's saying, "You know what? 
Don't try to control your mouth so much and say, man, I really got to get on top of this particular issue or I've really got to change this and find yourself doing the same thing over and over. You need to really understand. Stop your Stop your trying to please, to impress, to like somehow make yourself acceptable to God and, and, and start to learn and understand how much he accepts, how much he loves, and how much he delights in you. You're fully accepted. Fully. You don't need to try to do something else to get win his favor. You're in Christ Jesus, therefore he loves you. You know one of the things the enemy loves to, have, to do in you is to mess with your heads. He's an accuser. He loves to take everything you've done and like, oh, no, don't listen to what this guy's saying. He doesn't understand. Like, look, do you know what you did? Do you know what you said? Do you know what you thought? But you understand? Like, I've got plenty on you. I've got plenty of junk on you. There's no way the Father could accept you. It's absolute lies. My acceptance doesn't have to do with my performance. My acceptance with the Father, His love upon me, His grace in my life has simply to do with the fact that I'm in Christ Jesus and that alone. If you would just take practice today understand, I am a, and say this, I am a child of God because I'm in Christ Jesus and my Father loves me and accepts me and delights in me. Let that bounce around for a while. Let that get into your heart and just think about that. Dwell on that and understand that and let it sink in. And you tell me if it doesn't fill you with the fullness of God and overflow in your life, overflow in your marriage. If you find yourself loveless and powerless, you know what you'll discover? A heart that does not understand the love of God. A heart that's been loved, a person that's been filled up and understands the love of God begins to love because they're filled with love. And we could easily stop there and just spend some time getting that into our minds. But there's even more. This whole section is more of what's been done for us in Christ. He goes on to say, I've got to get back to where I was at. In verse 7, In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This, is, again, is, is super loaded. But we don't really understand redemption. Because redemption throughout Scripture is, is really connected to slavery. So if we're not in a slave culture, we don't really understand slave culture, and so it's hard for us to understand redemption. In Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 52, it says, If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he has sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. 
The time he was with his owner shall be rated at the time of a hire, as the time of a hired worker. There's law within Israel because there, there's a slave culture there, and there's how, how they're to function with it. And there's, so you could, you could get in a desperate situation, and you could sell yourself, or you could sell property, land, inheritance land, or things. And throughout Scripture, it explains how these are to be redeemed. And what redeeming is, it's to buy back the price to get them out of this bondage and slavery and bring them back to their position of liberty. So we understand that. You, he says, Jesus is our redemption. You know what it assumes? It assumes bondage. It assumes slavery. We're slaves. We're slaves and in bondage to sin. And so we needed to get back. But here's the thing. Our father, Adam, he sinned. Because of his sin, brought us all into slavery. And so you know what's also unique in Scripture? That the person, the person who redeems you needs to be related to you, your next of kin. It'll often explain if it's the closest to you and then you go further and further out. And so your redeemer, the one who redeems you, has to be connected to you, for one. And then also has to have the ability to pay the price. Do we know what the cost of is required to pay the price of sin? God says the wages of sin or the cost of sin is death. It also says in Leviticus and in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why if you go back to the text, it says what it does. In him we have redemption. And then what's the next phrase? Through his blood. It says the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So the only one who can qualify for as our redeemer, as humanity's redeemer, must be one that's connected to all humanity like Adam is. The only one who's connected to all humanity like Adam is, is the word of God, the son of God, before he was even before Adam. He's the one, he's a representative in heaven through whom all creation came. So now he comes as one, as the next akin of all humanity who can redeem all humanity. And then he has to pay a payment, which is the shedding of our blood. We can't pay that payment. It's way more than we can afford. What happens if you give your blood? You're dead. So death is required. But we know what happens. Jesus gives his blood. Through the shedding of his blood, we are redeemed. We're bought back from slavery. Our sins and trespasses, as it says, are forgiven. And we're set free. This, again, as I said before, this doesn't mean we're ne- we never sin again. If you think of sin like this disease, or you think of a sin like a monster, or if you think of a sin like, say it was a barrel, and in it we dwelled, we were in it. And it was so far in us, all the way through us, it affected everything in us. And Jesus redeems. He takes us out of the slavery. He takes us out of the bondage and sets us free. Now, in experience, you're thinking, well, how does that work when we still sin? Well, the way that works is that, yes, you sin because you're, you still have unredeemed body, unredeemed flesh. But the inward man has been raised to newness of life. So have you as Christians, do you find yourself conflicted? Do you find in your inward man, 
You desire, you love God, you delight in God, you seek, you seek to obey God, you rejoice in God, and yet you find in your flesh all kinds of passions and desires that conflict with you? Do you find yourself in conflict? Well, that's the state of the Christian until the resurrection, until we're free from this body and we die and we put off the flesh. We're going to find ourselves conflicted. We're going to find ourselves struggling. We're going to find ourselves there. But this is what we have to do. If we're to know the goodness of this gospel, we have got to strengthen the inward man, as Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4. We have got to put on Christ, strengthen the inward man, and we have to, and the way we do that is, is really by the means of grace. We seek the Lord in his word. We, we, through prayer, through fellowship with other Christians, we get strengthened. And we give no, the other thing we're to do is give no opportunity for the flesh. And I think what happens a lot of times is we give way too much opportunity to the flesh. And we give way too little to the inward man. The inward man is starving and the flesh is feasting. The things you set before your eyes, the things you put in your ears, the things that you dwell on, you think on, you talk about, wherever you dwell, you're going to start. If you're dwelling on things of the flesh, you're going to feed the flesh. And the Bible says give no opportunity for the flesh. And some of us are just totally weak, constantly stumbling and following and you know, bewildered as to what's going on. It's because we're giving opportunity to the flesh. You need to cut off every opportunity for the flesh. And we need to feast on God. Delight in Him. Seek Him in prayer and through His Word. Enjoy Him and, and be filled up with one another. Fellowship with one another, the things of God. Talk to one another about what God is doing in your life. Share what you're learning from the Word. Talk with one another. Build one another. Ask how one another is doing and encourage one another and pray for one another. And this way we strengthen the inward man. And this is, this is the, the, the power of the gospel is amazing because it deals with our status and our standing. And also, not only that, it deals with the issues of sin and death in our own hearts. Jesus did it all. He redeemed us from sin. He placed us in, herself, in himself. Now we're holy and blameless in Christ, and we're children of the living God. You cannot build a better family or a better life or better anything without your sins being forgiven, your conscience being cleared, your life being reconciled to God, and your soul being filled with the goodness of God. Without that, you've got nothing. And I can't offer you anything. What the Lord is offering you a feast, and he's offering you something that will transform your family. But what you have to do is dwell on the things of God and what he's done for you. Understand his love. Understand his acceptance. Understand your holiness and blameness in Christ. Understand your freedom from sin and your need to feast on him and fill up the inward man. If you understand that, understand what's been done for you in Christ Jesus, you will have fullness of life and it will spread out into your family and everything you do. But if we fail to live in the light of the gospel, we're going to struggle, we're going to fail, and we're going to suffer miserably. This is why if you're to build a better family, if you're to build a stronger marriage, 
You need the gospel. Amen. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. We're so grateful that he's done what we couldn't do. We ask you to help us to feast our hearts and our minds on what has been done for us in Christ, your love for us, how we're holy and blameless and accepted before you, children of, children of God, redeemed from the bondage of sin, forgiven and cleansed. Help us to understand the height, the depth, and the width and breadth of the love of Christ, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.